0: So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Welcome back to Kafaru Cast, everyone. I am uh, personally back from the dead. Uh, my immune system there for a while looked like Rocky after he fought the uh, the Russian. So if I sound a little funny, that's why. Um, but I uh, I have a super cool guest on today. I'm actually fanboying a little bit. That's somebody I followed along on the photography side for a while, and uh, this is the first time I've actually ever talked to her. Uh, so don't make fun of me for fanboying or girling, however you want to say it. Uh, but Brooke Bartelson. <laughs> What's going on, Brooke?
1: Not much. Super stoked to be chatting. It's funny because I'm also kind of fangirling out over here. Um, your work, the stuff you do, is super badass. So I'm pumped to be chatting. Sorry, in advance if I fan out a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I uh, photography-wise, like I could stop hunting tomorrow and just photograph full time. Not really an option for me right now, but something I'm, I'm spending a lot more time on. So. You know, at social media works, you type in photography, it's like they know you're going to type it in. Next thing you know, I'm getting sales ads. But you also get, you know, other photographers that pop up and your page popped up, you know, a long time. Anyway, I've always followed along. And then I'm a big, uh, you know, Bears is a big, big one for me. Um and that seems to be one of your specialties amongst many other things. But uh, tell everybody a little bit about like your history, your background and, and what you do now, because it's, it's pretty damn cool uh, just from the short amount of time we talked before we hopped on.
1: Yeah. So thank you, by the way. That, that's awesome. That means a lot. I love when people you know, actually see my work out there in the greater world. So my background is a little bit uh, scattered. I grew up in New Jersey, in North Jersey, not too far from New York City in an area where there's just there's no nature i thought that like the green grass that grew in my parents front yard i thought that was as wild as the world got i didn't know nothing about animals nothing about mountains thought of the desert as like a barren wasteland that nobody would ever want to spend time in until i was about 16 years old i went to the summer camp my parents sent me off to like a christian summer camp when i was a teenager try to save me from my, you know, vagabond ways at the time I was getting into a little bit of trouble here and there because I've always been an adventurous person. And when I was at this camp, it was up in North Jersey, kind of on like the Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania state line. So in an area where there's a lot of national forests or state forests, and I, I saw a bear one day when I was out for a run. And it was like the coolest experience. Um, it was the most alive I'd ever felt up until that point, some way, somehow. These animals, it was a mama bear and two cubs. And I was running up this stretch of road and they crossed the road right in front of me. And I got so scared because there, there's two, three bears right there. And, and you always hear, you know, the scariest bear in the world is a mama bear with cubs. And I'm watching this mother black bear and her two cubs run across the highway in front of me. My heart is pounding. My knees start wobbling and shaking. I feel like someone's pointing a loaded gun right at my face. And they, they pass into the other side of the forest and then they're gone. And I'm standing there. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so scared. But then I also realized that they never even looked at me. Like these three animals had the power to intimidate me to the point where I felt like I was going to pass out. But I never even blipped on their radar. They had no idea I ever existed. And I kind of described that moment as like, you know, when, you, when you're young and you, you have like a giant crush and you fall completely in love with them, but they don't even know that you're there and you just start gearing your whole personality and your whole life around getting that person's attention. That's honestly kind of my relationship with bears. So shortly after that, I turned 17, it was time for me to go off to college. Again, as a Jersey girl, I didn't know anything about nature. All I knew was there was a state called Colorado and it had mountains. And in my mind, I was like, if there's mountains, there's got to be animals there. And if there's animals, they have to be bears. So I went to the University of Colorado Boulder, spent four years there. I studied creative writing because I just wanted to not have a hard course load so that I could spend as much time as possible going hiking and looking for animals. And funny enough, Colorado is really not the best place for viewing bears. There's not that many of them. The ones that there are around tend to be really skittish. They have nocturnal life patterns because... You know, there's tons of people in Colorado. It's such a developed state, especially on the front range where Boulder is. So after I graduated college, I started just trying to move to wilder places. Ended up further up in the mountains in Colorado. Then after that, jumped over to Utah, because Utah is a little bit less developed. From Utah, I went on up to Idaho, then into Montana, then over to Wyoming, and then ultimately up to Alaska, which is the land of the bear. And my, my professional background through this whole wandering pursuit of how can I see bears more often, I started doing wildlife photography because I was going out hiking, you know, every day after class, all through college, looking for animals. And for four years while I was in school, I'd just find animals and would just stare at them because it never occurred to me that I could monetize them through taking their photo. After I graduated college, I was having a really hard time finding a job because of the fact that I studied creative writing and full disclosure, even though I had got a degree in it, I was never particularly good at it. So my job opportunities were really slim. Um, I got just like a basic young 20-year-old girl corporate job in an office that just so happened to be up in the mountains in Colorado. Using my paycheck from that, I bought myself my first camera. Started posting my photos of the animals I would see on my Instagram and gained traction through that really quickly. I think I was kind of, you know, this was 2015, 2016. I was kind of one of the first young women really barging her way into the wildlife photography space publicly, which predominantly before that was just definitely dominated by, you know, men, typically older men, retirees who have a lot of money and time to spare. It was kind of unusual to see a young woman from New Jersey out there in the same realms and places. And, you know, coincidentally, going a lot further into these places because of the fact that I wasn't an older retiree. So that gained me some traction and some, some visibility to the world at large. And I started getting these small projects here and there from camera companies, tripod companies, tourism boards, just random gear companies, coffee companies, things like that that just wanted me to shout them out on social media or create some content for them involving my adventures into the wilderness and the wildlife photos that I take. So that made me realize that I could quit my little corporate job and live on the meager money that I was getting from social media, which, like I said, was very meager. And for a few years, I did exclusively that, just wildlife photography. And then recently I realized that I have this really special thing where through my wildlife photography, I've gained a lot of time, a lot of hours around certain wild animals And because bears are my obsession. Bears were one of those animals that I gained a ton of field hours with. And I was able to apply those field hours to first a volunteer position with a National Park in Wyoming, um, spending some time volunteering on their bear management team. And then from there, I was able to apply those hours along with my field hours from photography to working as a bear viewing guide, which was the best of both worlds, because I'm out in the field in Alaska photographing bears, using those photos for my own pursuit in that regard. But I also have a group of clients that I am showing these bears, too. And I get to share these animals that I'm literally obsessed with with other people, make them fall in love with those animals. It's just it's like the dream career. And it supplements my income. Um, it's, it's hard to make a living wage on photography. But when you supplement that with wildlife guiding, you can somewhat afford to, to eat and drink the occasional <laughs> beer. So that was a really long winded, but also like very surface level introduction of like what I do and what my path is. Like I said, it's been winding and uncertain and I've really just made everything up as I've gone along, so it's sometimes hard to iterate.
0: No, no, I, I get it. The one thing I should have done um, is, can you tell everybody your social media page? I should have done that in the beginning. Uh, just, get it, it, your your work is amazing. So,
1: yeah, totally. So to see my body of photography and then also follow along on my stories and see what I'm up to behind the scenes every day. My Instagram's Brooke Littlebear, and that's Brooke with an E.
0: Gotcha. And I highly suggest everybody go follow Brooke, um, especially if you're into photography. I'm kind of in a weird dynamic of I, you know, as a a hunter and also photographer, so I get a little bit of everything. But I have a lot of people, um, you know, that follow along that are hunters getting into photography, and then I have just photographers. And probably like you, the one thing I've found is uh, I haven't, I have done photo shoots with, um, I don't say vast dynamic People really far, you know, right and really far left all in the same group taking photos and managed to get away with that, um, even as, as a hunter, it's given me a very unique perspective on different people's thought process, I guess you could say. You know, I I, I hope like people like you or me or whatever that have, have maybe more. I don't say open-minded, but it's like, look, guys, just because I'm a, a hunter doesn't mean I don't care about wildlife. And I hope to convey that with my photography and your page. When you look at it, it's just, it's just amazing. I would imagine with you take all walks of life from the casual, uh, you know, well, I'm in Alaska and I want to see some bears and I haven't to professional photographers. I mean, it sounds like probably you take just about everybody out.
1: Totally. And that's a really good point. I take people out on these trips from professional film crews and photographers working with, you know, household name publications or production companies to casual viewers who are they've been saving for a trip like this for years and years and years. And it's finally time for them to splurge to millionaires, billionaires that fly up there on their private jets and go, you know, balls to the wall, spending money and and barring no holds on fulfilling whatever it is that they're looking for out there. And I've, I've always said this from both a, like a, I don't know what the best word is, like an economic viewpoint, as well as a political viewpoint. Wildlife is the one thing that people from every side almost unanimously seems to agree on. Obviously there are little nuances here and there of how we should manage wildlife in different spaces. And people argue a lot like, Oh, should there be wolves in Colorado? Should we let them come in naturally? Should we be reintroducing them? Is Colorado too overpopulated and can't sustain a wolf population? Those discussions happen at the local level, but as a whole human beings, we just really like animals naturally. It makes sense. Biologically we're designed to eat them. When you see an animal, your brain is supposed to have the same exact reaction as when you see the most delicious cheeseburger ever. You know, it's like a food reward. Like, yes, you did the thing. You found the target. Here are some endorphins to reward your hard work. And so people can always seem to relate quite a bit on the topic of animals are amazing. I love them. I want to protect and conserve them. And I love that about wildlife. I think it's like one of the last subjects on planet Earth where you can have people from all sides of the table agreeing on some sort
0: of commonality yeah no i i agree with that and and it's it's been an eye opener in some ways for me and 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 i uh even though obviously somewhat of a knuckle dragger um prepare myself for conversations especially anytime i'm doing any kind of a photo shoot or anything like that to where i convey like a you know i'm putting a good foot forward for outdoorsmen and hunters but also for the fact that like hey I didn't carry this small child of a, you know, 18-pound, you know, 400-millimeter lens in to take photos of these because I don't care about them. Like, I, I packed this lens in this far to get amazing photos to show people the the beauty of the outdoors and that I, 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 I truly enjoy photography and wildlife. With what you do, there's a little bit different um, – there's a little more – that you can get eaten by what you're photographing more so than I, I don't have to worry about a mule. You're eating me, and I, I don't. I don't do. I'm, I'm taking a trip to Alaska this year with my my wife, and 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 I, just to photograph bears and whales. The j- dangerous aspect of that, uh, or the danger, does that freak people out um, a little bit? And initially, I mean, I'm sure you, you you have to have some amazing stories on the bear portion of this.
1: Yeah, it does. It uh, I mean, bears are scary. They're massive. Their strengths vastly superior to mine every time. Even a young, small bear could easily beat me in a fight. The wilderness in which they habitate is terrifying, especially in Alaska. You know, to get out to where I take my clients bear viewing, at minimum, we're taking a 25-minute bush plane ride, a float plane specifically, to go land on the southeast Alaskan uncertain seas that are constantly bombarded by wind and storms. And oftentimes, that's only the first part of our commute after that we have to kayak or take a boat and then after that we have to hike across some really uneven challenging terrain to get out to where the bears are so everything about bears is prohibitive and terrifying but my job is to bridge that gap between this animal is scary and getting to where this animal lives is scary but it's possible to do this safely repetitively time after time Bears aren't inherently programmed to see a human and want to kill and consume. I think it's really fun to believe that. It's really fun to believe that, to think that every time you're out hiking in bear country, you have to be checking over your shoulder. And if you spot a bear from 200 yards away, you got to get the fuck out of there because that thing's coming for you. It's fun to have that thrill and that excitement and that drama in life. But the reality is bears see humans pretty much no so differently than the way that they see other bears. And as long as the humans aren't surprising the bear, you know, that's one circumstance where, yeah, you better pray. Uh, Cause that thing will, that thing will kick your ass. But in circumstances where you're wor- walking through the woods and you're doing an adequate job of announcing your presence to any bears on the landscape, or you have the opportunity to see a bear before it sees you and you can respond appropriately to that situation. They're not as, Inherently horrific, as people like to believe, and my whole job is to convey that with words, right before we go out bear viewing, but also to demonstrate that with my physical being and existence on the landscape among the bears. Um, we we have circumstances where bears pass by us. You know, we're on the ground, right? We're not in hides or blinds or tree stands or viewing from cars or boats or vans. We are dropped off by a bush plane, walking or kayaking out to where the bears are, sitting on the ground at a level that's typically I choose spots that are lower than eye level for the bear. So we're we're beneath the bears where we go out and view them. And we'll have bears pass by at distances of a matter of feet often. And I understand that from a visual standpoint, when a guest shows up and sees me as their bear guide, they're gonna feel a little bit like, oh, I expected my bear guy to be some big burly man with a giant beard who weighs 250 pounds, six foot three. You know, They're not expecting a five foot six, 110 pound blonde girl to keep them safe from something as imposing as a brown bear. But I get to demonstrate out in the field how it doesn't matter how big you are as a human being. If you're speaking to a bear using the same body language that bears speak to one another with, you're going to have a successful encounter. And that's obviously not something you can expect the general public to know, right? You you don't just wake up one day fluent in any language let alone bear body language. But that's the cool thing about, you know, hiring a guide like myself or any other bear guide up in Alaska or wherever you may be traveling is in order to do the job, you have to be fluent in bear communication. And it's just really cool to get to show people, you know, yes this is scary, yes this is dangerous. It's possible to do this successfully Um, and it's a sustainable model when you have a successful encounter with a bear at close proximity it's not a one-off it's not like oh my god you just got so lucky that thing could have ripped you to shreds it's like no this is this is repeatable behavior if that makes sense
0: no, no, it does. And I mean, obviously it, it does to me because I've been around bears a lot and, and and have become what I refer to as more desensitized in the sense of, <clears throat> I brought this up before, like, um, you know, there's not a lot of, like, I'm not afraid of snakes or bears or spiders or whatever, but like sharks are a little bit more unknown to me because I haven't been in shark water. so. When I'm, you know, especially with friends of my wife, let's say, like, aren't you worried about a bear is going to eat you? And I'm like, mm, no, no, I uh, had a better chance of getting hit by a truck before I got to the trailhead than a bear and in- a bad bear encounter. Um, when when I say desensitized, meaning you just said it, reading the bear, right? If they start snapping their teeth, they have cubs, you've surprised them. Y- yeah, you might get fucked up. But your your actions really are what's going to, for the most part, not all the time. Um, your actions are really going to tell the story after that initial um, you know, when you run into each other. And when I, you know, when I say that, like we ran into a giant bear on Kodiak this year, and I was with guys that have, have a have a great history of of danger, but not with bears. And so when we're walking, it, it was a very large bear, like 12 yards. And, you know, they, they about shit their knickers and I'm like, nope, chill. Nope. We're good. We're good. And it was, I'm like, this is a Kodiak bear that lives by people. Just stand here for a minute. It's going to go back to eating its fish and we'll just walk by it. If you don't know that, that is a big giant, you know, I don't, whatever. It was probably an eight and a half uh, foot sow, maybe, maybe pushing a little but closer to nine. So decent sized bear. Um, If you don't know that, but it's like this thing's used to seeing humans. We startled it a little bit. It looked at us for a minute and then it went straight back to eating its fish. It didn't give a shit. We were there. But if you don't know that immediately people might run, scream and do things that are probably not conducive to that specific Actions you should be taking at that time. Where my experience has really been like, sounds like the same as yours. If you just don't act like an idiot, you're probably going to be okay unless you scare the shit out of them and they have cubs. That's a little bit different scenario.
1: Exactly. My mentor puts it really, really fun. Um, he describes humans as apes in the eyes of a bear. So imagine like you're chilling out one day by a stream, you're fishing, you're having a great day of fly fishing, you're catching dolly varden less than Rice, right. it's big and fat and you're just really happy like you're really well fed you're munching the whole time you're out there you've been chewing on some some berries that are growing up along the riverside and then all of a sudden a chimpanzee comes out of the woods and you're like oh shit that thing's really weird looking hmm that makes me a little bit uncomfortable there's a chimpanzee here now what the hell but the chimp is chilling out too and it's just kind of sitting there like picking its nose whatever you're like all right well it's no big deal. The chimp is just chilling. I'm not worried about him. But then all of a sudden, you look back at the chimp, and you're like, wait a second. There's a chimpanzee here. This is really strange. Let me, let me go get a closer look. And you take a few steps towards the chimpanzee just to make sure your mind's not playing tricks on you. Like, that is really a chimp, and it's not just some ugly motherfucker that walked out of the forest. And then the chimp stands up, and it starts screaming. And it starts slapping the ground, and it's pointing at you. And it's, like, acting, you know, like a chimpanzee does in the zoo. Like, it's shaking a tree branch and stuff, and it's freaking the fuck out. You're going to be like oh, my God, I hate that thing. This is making me feel really uncomfortable. And you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to, like, leave the area because now you're really stressed out by this shrimp. Or if you feel like maybe you're strong enough to teach that thing a lesson, you're going to go over there and you're going to punch it in the face and make it shut up and leave you alone so you can enjoy your beautiful, wonderful day of fishing this dream stream and eating berries and just being happy. And I love that description of how bears see humans. More often than not when people see bears they go into like full-on chimp mode and they start like screaming at a bear and running away and just acting really erratically and chances are the bear was probably fine with the person at first and was communicating at most was just kind of saying like okay i see you you're there please keep your distance respect me because like the number one thing a bear is ever trying to communicate And humans just misread the situation and they go apeshit. I have a a phrase that I use when I'm guiding to teach humans um, the moments where their behavior is often misinterpreted. When bears do certain things, I'll look at my clients and I'll say, this is when most Alaskans would start shooting. And I say that to iterate. There are often instances where a bear walks six feet past us. And, you know, actually where I guide, we have more moms with cubs um than you know sub-adult bears that haven't reached sexual maturity and haven't started reproducing or large males so we'll have like a mom with cubs pass us at six feet or maybe as far as 15 yards and i'll turn back to my clients and say this is when most alaskans would start shooting because in their minds here's a mom with cubs the bear we're told is the most dangerous bear and it's close to me i need to take control of this situation But the reality is, in a lot of situations, if that mom and cub is choosing to walk that close by you, you know, she's seen you, she knows you're there, you're not surprising her. You're fine to just sit quietly, maintain a low, slow body posture, and let her move on by and proceed with her day.
0: And one of the analogies I've brought up with what you're talking about, um, because we have, there's certain parameters for all of this. and and one of the things and I'd be interested to get your feedback on this is if you take your kids to the mall, your kids will walk by strangers all day and they're comfortable with that. They're strangers, they're supposed to be there, meaning let's say it's just people fishing and there's bears out, they're used to that. But if a stranger shows up in your living room out of the blue, the, the mom is going to have a much different response than you walking around in a mall, meaning when you jump or, or you walk into and surprise a mom with cubs. That's a little bit different scenario to where what you're talking about, and I mean, I agree with you totally, your body posture, if they're used to it, there was no, they weren't scared initially and everything else, it's not as big of a deal. So I'm like, what, you know, just because there is a bear and you see the bear, but the bear sees you, there's a lot of time in there, you have really not nothing to worry about, but very little it's when you scare the shit out of one and whether you're in like tag alder or you just jump up on that portion is a little bit different, but like people get really freaked out by bears and it's really, I don't want to say 90 I don't want to put a number on it. I'm not an expert, but I have not had bad experiences with bears. Now I've had them charge. We have some videos on YouTube. We've had to fire some warning shots a few times in NWT where we've, it was a sub 50 coming in more, you know, where we've had to put a few bears down to where it was like, okay, we're, we're in trouble. Like this one's not going away. Um, but for the most, like we had a bear eat one of our backpacks. We didn't do anything. Right. I mean, some people may have shot the bear, but it was like, look, you sweated all over that. It was salty. It's licking the lumbar pad and it ate your pack. I'll give you another one. Like I'm not going to kill a bear because it came over and ate my back. That's its job, right? Like that's what it's doing. It was a new thing in the outdoors, but it wasn't showing aggression to us. It just wanted to lick the salt off the lumbar pad and it fucked up your backpack. It's not the end of the world. If somebody started yelling and try, trying to get their backpack back, that's the kind of the chimpanzee analogy you brought up. It's how exactly. you act. Yeah. It's what you do really kind of dictates the interaction.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I love that analogy about surprising a bear, like the difference between, you know, being out in public, knowing that there's strange things around you, and then all of a sudden it appearing inside of your domicile and the panic reaction that that's going to cause. Because it is true. I mean, the worst possible thing you can do in bear country is surprise a bear. And that's when, and I tell my clients this and I tell people this all the time when they ask, you know, about successfully coexisting with bears. When you surprise a bear, all the rules go out the window with the exception of a few, right? Like don't run it's yeah, like, really. Yeah. If there's one thing to remember when you surprise a bear, it's just don't run, do anything, do everything other than run, fight, scream, warning shots, bear spray, anything, just don't run. Because you know, we all, most people have dogs. If you run away from your dog, what's he going to do? He's going to chase you. Same thing with the dang bear. The other thing too, also the, the other bear that really scares me, um, And it's funny, people think of, people are scared of bears when they're way out in the forest, but when they live or are vacationing in a town that borders on bear country, they'll march around town or go take the trash out of their Airbnb after dark and not think twice about being scared of bears. But the reality is the other scariest bear, in my opinion, is the food conditioned bear, is the bear that's learned that it can rip open a garage, break in and eat all the yummy stuff that lives inside the garage. Or it's the bear that learns along the fishing stream that every time it approaches fishermen, they cut their lines, and now there's a free fish just floating down the stream for me to eat. Those are the bears that really intimidate me because they learn, you know, that they can bully and push around human beings. And really, the only way to prevent that from happening, like you know, at least you can kind of prevent sometimes a surprise bear by not hiking alone in bear country. Making sure you're making adequate noise while you're out in bear country. Bringing a dog so that your dog surprises the bear first. And at least your dog can probably run and be successful with running away. Food conditioned bears, the only way to prevent that is to prevent them from ever learning to eat human stuff. So, like, if you live in bear country, get a bear-proof trash can. If you live in bear country and have a bird feeder, maybe take it down when there's bears active. Maybe just have it up when they're hibernating. Otherwise, you're inviting a bear to come throw its body weight around right outside your kitchen window, and and like just being really mindful of not having anything that's going to draw bears in and teach them that they can get food from humans in human spaces. Because once a bear learns that, they become really scary.
0: No, they. I agree with that. The the one thing, um, like last year, I'm in. I live in Wyoming now, and and you know in Colorado, I don't really black bears don't. I don't want to downplay it. I just don't really ever give a shit about black bears I don't worry about them. Um,
1: and I them
0: a large raccoons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And, and I don't, I don't carry a gun or haven't in, and, and in Wyoming, I probably will um, carry a 10 mil or something. And, but like, you know, I, it's, I've been in BC a lot. I've been in the NWT. It's just, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying I'm smart for not packing a gun. I just never had. And somebody always had one, so I just didn't worry about it as mm-hmm. much. Probably start carrying one now. Last year coming out, we had – um we were scouting. There was a couple in the high country above treeline. Uh, just, you know, we were just watching them along with mule deer and elk, and they're, you know, screwing around, digging up grubs and chitting, doing what bears do. And then on the hike out, I had had – I left my two buddies in. I had to come back for – do some work stuff. And on the hike out, me not being used to making noise because of Colorado, I just never – I run into black bears in Colorado. I'm just like, oh, there's a bear. It's like you said, it's, oh, it's a raccoon. They just don't give a shit. Like there's – like trash bears are a little different. In the mountains, nothing for me to worry about where now I'm in Wyoming. I almost forgot there's grizzlies around and I'm just – Bebop and not making any noise down the trail. And one stands up at like 20 yards immediately, like straight up looking at me and started kind of doing the huffing thing. And immediately I'm like, mm, yeah, I fucked up. Yeah. I probably should have been making noise. You know, I'm like, hmm. yeah. So for, for me, all I did was unbuckled my belt uh, of my pack. Cause I can't climb a tree that well to begin with. So I'm like, okay, I need to be a little more speedy with this. Now, bears can climb trees, but I'm like, well, it's better than me just taking an ass whooping on the ground. At least I can climb and maybe climb quick enough for what, you know what I mean? Like detour it. Totally. So I just skipped over to the tree, like three yards, step by step. And uh, it was, it was a male it was watching me and it, I don't know, it just went back to doing what it was doing. And then I gave it a few minutes, watched what direction it went because I'm like, okay, my luck, it's going to go right down the trail. I'm walking down. I'm going to need to loop <laughs> around. But it went, it went the other way, never ran off. Uh, the wind was not good. It's wind was blowing to me the other way around. It wouldn't have been there when I got there for the most part, it would have probably blown. Right. Out. So I was like, all right, I got to get better at remembering to maybe, you know, so I, I sound like a cow getting hit with hail. I'll sing when I sing. So I'll just sing. I'll, I'll do something. I got to make a little bit more noise. Um, I'm so used to Colorado. I don't make noise at all. I don't ever worry about that where it popped up and it was a big bear, but it wasn't like, um, it was one of those things, like you said, I didn't run. I didn't make any noise. I just stood there and I'm like, I'm going to get a little closer to this tree. shows any aggression, I'll start, you know, hey, bear. You know, I'm not saying I did the right thing, but – it was one of those reminders to me of, "Hey, dumb fuck, you're in bear country now, and not the black ones, not the raccoon bears." I, I need to pay more attention because they're all over. And you're you you are in Wyoming now, extremely yeah. high population, something I'm not used to.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's that's a really good story. I first of all, I love that because, I mean, in my opinion, you did do everything right. It also is one of those stories that exemplifies like the general public wouldn't know to do the things that you do. And had that been somebody else in your shoes, that very easily could have turned into a really bad encounter that we would have read about on the news. But I, I definitely, um, I struggle a lot with that too, with like, when I'm out there guiding in Alaska, I'm, I'm on, right. I'm at a hundred percent. I'm more than that because it's myself and also these clients who are consenting to giving up all control and all ability to keep themselves within the parameters of what they're used to in life and giving me that. And so I don't, I don't ever turn off or, or get complacent. That's that's the worst thing you can do while guiding, but you know, because of what I do and for how long I've been doing this, most of my friends now in life are bear guides as well. And somehow when I'm hanging out with my bear guide friends, you know, sometimes our brains, we just become idiots. I don't know if it's the effect of like, Oh, I'm with my two other bear guide friends they're in charge now or like they're thinking about that i don't need to think about it something just deteriorates in our brains and there was one example Um, we were up in off like the south central alaska coast this past summer peak salmon run so me and my two buddies were out fishing both of them are bear guides in alaska as well one of them is actually my co-guide so we've spent hundreds if not thousands of hours in the field together um, with various carnivores not just bears And the other one is is our best friend um, who's kind of the local expert for the stream that we were fishing. And we're just having a grand old time. We're casting, we're laughing. It's a beautiful day. It had been raining for a while. The sun just came out and we're like high on sunshine. And sure enough, a bear pops out upstream from us. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. There's a bear. We'll just move over to the other side of the stream and let him pass. At the same time, another bear pops out from downstream. And we're like, ah. We don't love this. We are now in the middle of two subadult bears. Subadult bears are like teenagers, right? They're punks. They probably want to fight each other because that's just the nature of teenagers when they see one another. And we're like, all right, this is a little uncomfortable. The the side of the river is just really thick alders, so there's no option for us to get out of the water and, and get totally out of the way of these two bears that are now heading for each other. But we're like, all right, this happens. We can handle this. And then a mob bear with four cubs pops out of the elders, like, I don't know, 15 yards from us. And now we've got this mom with four spring cubs. So the smallest, youngest a bear cub will be at this time of year. And then two subadult bears approaching her from either side of the stream. And we're like, this is not the best. Uh, Who's got the bear spray? And I look at one of the guys and one of the guys looks at me. And then we look at the other guy and he looks at the other guy and we're all like, who's got the bear spray? and I look upstream at the first bear that had popped out and he's standing on this gravel bar sniffing the bear spray can. Whoever was holding the bear spray just plopped it down on the gravel bar probably to like free up a pocket while they were digging around for flies or something and just left it there. And now you know there's three of us that ironically the three bear guides, in such a stupid situation because we just like I don't know, got that, like, I think there's a word for it, right? When you're with a bunch of other experts and you just relinquish all control to them, but the other expert relinquishes all control to you and no one communicated that. And then you're just totally fucked and unprepared. And it was just an example. I mean, everything worked out totally fine. I actually got some amazing photos out of the encounter because all the bears were being really charismatic because they were all just as freaked out as we were, which made for some great photos. And the two (laughs) punky teenage bears did exactly what we thought. They fixated on each other. And ended up, one of them chased the other one back upstream. And then the mom with her four cubs was just like, teenagers, am I right? And then looked at us and was like, "Ah, eh, you guys are fine. You're not bothering me. And she and her cubs fished a little bit and then went on downstream uh, pretty quickly. They were only in our presence for a couple of minutes at that point. And everything was fine and wonderful. But man, it was a really good reminder of just how quickly complacency or forgetting where you are or lack of awareness can get you in an awful situation in bear country.
0: And one thing that I... um would would add i guess to what you're talking about is uh you know whether it's bear spray or or a, a pistol um, practice with it or just if you don't practice with it, the chance of you harming yourself um, or not pulling it out at all is not very i mean you're <laughs> um, <clears throat> Having it in the lid of your backpack isn't really helping you, so you might as well not carry okay. the weight, right? And so, and, and I say this, but I'm funny and being serious too. Like, also have it ready, practice getting it out, just like you would a pistol. Um, make sure you know, I've had people spray that shit on themselves by accident, Um, (laughs) you know, things like that. So be cognizant. Don't just, Oh, I have it. I'm safe. You're not safe. If you have it and you don't know how to use it. So have it ready. And then the other thing too, like it's a big decision for people of bear spray or, or a pistol. And in some cases, a pistol makes more sense just because it's more, you, you know, if you have a concealed carry, it's, you know, far beyond, you know, home security or whatever you, you have, you can, Mm -hmm you could spray a human i guess with bear spray but um the, the 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 other thing too is when to use it is is extremely important and kind of how i was taught was 50 and under semi aggressive warning shot 50 and under extremely aggressive moving from warning shot to to a a kill shot and that's the last thing you want to do is is shoot right. one if you don't have to but 25 and in extremely aggressive. I'm probably going to dump the bear. Um, same thing with pepper spray, sub 25 and aggressive hit it. Like, don't mess around. What are your thoughts on some of that? And you're not going to hurt my feelings by telling me I'm I'm wrong. That's just kind of where I've sub 25 and charging. It's probably going to get tipped over 50. It's going to get some warning shots. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: this is a conversation that happens all the time. Like you know, the debate of bear spray versus firearm and when to, you know, pull the trigger of either thing. So just with some background, personally, I carry bear spray as my primary defense um, or I carry a marine flare. I don't know if you've seen this much. It's definitely um, a bear deterrent that will never catch on in the lower 48 or inland Alaska or British Columbia or any of those other bear places that have really dry climates because you run the risk of, uh, starting I, a fire. I would just which,
0: say only Alaskans which, have talked to me about this. And only Alaskans, yeah. but yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> it's it's only like coastal Alaska where you can get away without it, without burning down the whole mountainside or um, polar bears. I work with polar bears as well as brown bears uh, and grizzly bears. In the fall, I go up to Churchill, Manitoba, which is on the shores of Hudson Bay to photograph polar bears. And in polar bear country, marine flares has become by far the preferred deterrent method. And, so I reach for my Marine Flare, my Bear Spray first. The reason why I personally don't choose a firearm as my primary form of bear deterrent is because I just don't trust myself. Uh, to be able to make the shot. I don't I, I do own firearms. I don't practice as often as I would like to because of the fact that I'm a bear guide and a photographer. I cannot afford enough ammo <laughs> to go out and become the the sharpshooter that I would need to feel like I am in order to trust myself to respond appropriately in the event of a bear attack with a pistol or long gun, even as my only defense. Bear spray I practice with all the time. I have practice canisters that I practice on with my dog. They just spray out like water instead of spray. And I have him you know, run at me from all different directions and, and practice my timing. Um, we have training tools and stuff for bear spray practice within the guide companies that I work for. And I I, I really agree with you, uh, I think, on the distance. I think really the one thing that I want to drive home is the acting aggressive. Um, if a bear is, is showing signs of... Really negatively reaction reacting to you and your presence, and you really believe that this bear is threatening your life. Don't think twice. Don't be like, well, Brooke said that bears are really misunderstood, and that most Alaskans would start shooting now. And I don't want to be like most Alaskans. I'm smarter and better than them. I want to wait this out and and see if maybe I'm misunderstanding the cues. Ideally, in a perfect world, yeah, do that. Right, like like wait until the last damn second, but. Man, when I talk to somebody, if they tell me a story where they shot a bear or hit a bear with bear spray, and they really, really felt in that moment that that was their only choice, I support that. I mean, this is your life. You only get one. Um, Oftentimes, it's not just your life. It's your your hiking buddy or your hunting partner. Or if you're a bear guide, it's, it's your clients that are consenting to be there and putting their lives in your hand. Act whenever you feel necessary in whatever capacity you really think is necessary.
0: Well, let let me add a, a little bit to that. Cause you brought up a very good point. Um, just because a gun makes you feel better mentally doesn't mean you should have one. Um, and I, I've had multiple different people on the podcast. When I say that, if you don't, if you the idea of one makes you feel comfortable, but when you have one in your hand scares the shit out of you, Bear spray is probably a better option, right? If you're someone that's very proficient with a pistol, um, and when I say proficient, I don't mean that you just went to a class once. Like you've fired multiple rounds down range. You're very comfortable with safety. Um, You are very, uh, the execution of obviously just getting off of your belt. You have good trigger control, um, trigger safety, whatever, muzzle awareness. The thing that I have really tried to stress out to people, especially people that are asking me, um, you know, that are thinking about moving to Wyoming, and, and I have not been around bears as much as many of my outfitter uh, buddies and guides and people like you, is look if it's at forty or fifty yards, ammo is relatively cheap. Fire one into the ground ten yards in front of you; you've probably just ended right. ended the whole story. It's gone. The bear's running away. If that bear, you're, the gun's now ready. You've already warmed up yourself. If that bear keeps coming, it's told you the story. 90 plus percent of the time, I would say that bear is going to take off. It doesn't want to hear that noise and it's going to get out of there. If that bear keeps coming or bluff charges, it's telling you, yeah, you're probably reaching a high level of danger. If you're with a buddy, one of the best things you can do is one, when I say best, somebody's proficient with a pistol, the other person has spray. Have the pistol out and ready. Hit it with spray. Like, like if it's still coming after getting blasted with bear spray, that's made the decision for you, in my opinion. Like you're probably in trouble. Bear spray is extremely effective, though. I've only used it three times, and I mean we. I mean it. It was extremely effective. And this is in areas where, not like Alaska, where they're used to seeing people. This was one in Wyoming in the NWT. They don't see people. And it's a little bit different dynamic where in Kodiak, like we're just walking around and bears are like dogs. They're just wandering around on the coast, looking for fish. They don't give a shit about humans. The ones that aren't right. used to humans is the, where I feel, then you may, you might disagree. Those are the ones that it adds a lot more, a, a, a bigger problem potentially.
1: Totally. Totally. Uh, yeah, actually. So one of the best days ever for me uh, was actually the day of one of my most serious bear encounters that I've ever had. It, I, it goes back and forth between a couple vying for first place. But um, two of my girlfriends came out to Alaska at the end of this bear season. So I was done guiding. Um, we we end the season around the time that the bears in these areas go into hyperphasia. Because, you know, very hungry bears can be a little bit more reactive. Um, it's just not the safest time of year to bring clients out for that reason. Also, we don't want to interfere with their feeding. This is like a critical time of year for them to pack on as many calories as we can. We don't want to do anything to inhibit that. So we stopped running commercial bear viewing trips out to this area, but occasionally bear guides will just go out to that spot and camp and enjoy time with the bears without a bunch of you know clients with us. So my friends, um, I don't know, you might know at least one or two of them, but um, it was me and Heather Lynn from Black Rifle and then Laura Zara, so survivalist, expert extraordinaire, and we went on like a girl's camping trip out to this bear zone. And on our last day there, we had a really tense encounter with these two bears that I've actually known since they were born. Um, but a, a, it was a perfect storm of awful circumstances that resulted in one of the twins acting like she wanted to potentially fight me. And in a moment, so, so leading up to the trip, uh, Heather brought her her pistol. She brought a 10-mil out with her. And I was like, hell yeah, that's great. I'm not bringing my firearm, but if you have yours, that's awesome. I feel good about that. But I actually kind of forgot she had it with her while we were out. So when this subadult female bear was putting on a show, trying to act tough towards us, I was in charge of managing the situation and I only had my bear spray. And in my mind, I had forgotten that Heather had her pistol with her and on her. And I, I really trust Heather's marksmanship. She's, spends a lot of time practicing. She practiced specifically for this trip, um, really like put in an admirable about amount of work to be ready for whatever could occur. So in the moment I was acting like bear spray was all I had to keep myself and two of my best friends from dying. So I'm, I'm really playing the situation as carefully as I can and everything worked out. The bear, you know, we, we, we got her to go away and everything was fine. And afterwards Heather was like, yeah, just so you know, dude, I had my gun ready to go that whole time. And I was like, that is fucking awesome. Thank you. Like, I I really appreciated that afterwards, knowing that she had that line of backup. And ever since then, I've always thought that that is actually a really, uh, I think valuable dynamic. If you're in, if you have the luxury of being out in the field with somebody else, um, maybe one person has bear spray as the first deterrent and somebody else has the gun as a secondary form of deterrent. Cause the problem is if it's you, one singular individual, um, you don't really get to choose between like, let me use my bear spray first and then my gun second. Bears are so fast. You have one chance, one chance to mitigate the situation. You don't have the luxury of being like, what's my plan A and what's my plan B? But when there's two humans, you have better reaction time. You have the opportunity for somebody to try one method and someone else be ready with the other. So <laughs> just kind of a cool best of both worlds situation.
0: No, definitely. Um, well, let's skip off of this and talk about photography for a little bit. Um, And uh, one of the things with photography, other than people checking out your page, uh, you shoot Olympus. Is that correct?
1: I do. Yeah. Uh, I shot Canon originally, but switched over to Olympus now called OM system. They just changed their name uh, like five years ago and never looked back.
0: So I had a, I think now this was like over a decade ago, and I have a P brain, an ODEM one, one of their first editions, and yeah. I've used everything from I've had like Nikon D850s, Canon, you know, every Canon made and every Sony basically made, and and I, I use an R5 and an R3 now. I if I I may have made a different decision if I talked to you before because one of the very and, and i'm a canon guy this is just i'm just speaking openly because i have so many photography questions and olympus or you said it's now om yeah okay. it doesn't get as much love as it probably should one of the um and you you tell me when i miss speaking here but one of the biggest things when i looked at this system and this was just a few months ago um, when i went to you know the new r5 and r3 and the new lenses from canon were very appealing What's appealing with the o m or olympus system is the weight um and the price you they their the weight of their camera and their lenses is lightweight and the price so my four hundred millimeter two eight is i think twelve thousand dollars their equivalent i i i think is seven or eight thousand um and yep. they, 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 they're, they're amazing cameras. I didn't know enough about them. They have, I don't know. Is it Zuko? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but anyway, talk yep. about the Olympus system. Cause yep. I'm fucking this up.
1: Totally. <laughs> well, I mean, everything you said was pretty much right. Um, so yeah, I used to shoot Canon, but I'm a very, I mean, I'm a small person and I'm basically the human equivalent of a bear. Like the the nickname Brooke little bear. I, I get called that for a reason. I am destructive as hell, but I'm small. So with that, I, you know, carrying a 400 to eight lens and a tripod and like a brick of a camera body is out of the question for me. I'm the type of person who, if I'm like reading in bed at night, holding my book up over my face, like the next morning, my biceps are sore. I just have no tolerance for extraneous weight. Additionally, because I'm a bear guide, when I go out into the field, my backpack is full of survival gear. That's, that's what my backpack is for, for my med kit, for all my other survival shit. If there's room for a camera, the camera goes in to the bag, but it's not a camera bag first. Um, these Olympus cameras are so small, so light and also like stupidly durable and also really affordable, which is amazing too. Um, I've, I, I don't, just yesterday. So, I, I'm working on, um, I'm trying to learn more about remote camera trapping. So, long story short, I'm, I'm learning how to use a motion sensor attached to my camera along with some flashes to photograph animals when I'm not present. And so, to practice, I set up my remote camera trap outside of my shack that I live in. And then I, I set it up and then I left for Colorado to go spend a short weekend in Colorado, but I ended up not being able to come back here to Wyoming for like 10 days. And so, my camera just sat out. In the blizzard, that was the reason why I couldn't come home because it shut down like all of Wyoming. It was just dumping, puking snow, nonstop wind. And my camera sat out in the blizzard the entire time it was happening with no protection whatsoever. Then I got home and I was really tired the night I got home. So I completely forgot about my camera that I had left outside for now 11 days. Next morning, I woke up and I looked outside the house and I was like, oh, shit, I think someone actually stole it. Like, it's totally gone. But then it dawned on me that we now have like, I don't know, four feet more of snow outside my house than we did when I left. So I grabbed my shovel and I dug into the snowbank and eventually found a camera and turned it on. And it was humming. Like there was no problem. Totally worked. It was fine. It was literally fine. I also dropped my cameras and my lenses into various bodies of water, including the ocean, which has salt in it, obviously. And like even the salt hasn't affected my cameras or lenses. So just like if you're an outdoors person, I swear by Olympus cameras up and down all over the place. I do think like, you know, that Canon 2.8 lens, that's, that is like an amazing lens because of the bokeh you can get. And like the amazing subject isolation with that 2.8 aperture, you can't, you can't fake that. That's dreamy, especially for wildlife. But for me, carrying a lens like that just isn't and never will be an option when I go into the field. Like I'm always going to pick the gear that's lighter and more portable and more durable. So and oh, like the best camera is the one you actually have on you
0: no it's like me i'm carrying you basically it's a it's a big fucker and yeah. under 600s even worse the um f4 oh my but, god yes yeah,
1: bonkers
0: well and, and so you know in in general while we're talking about this like a you know i get a lot of messages um looking to get into wildlife photography um photography in general Um, You know, I'm trying to spend around $800 to $1,000. What camera should I get? My suggestion is get an iPhone 14 Max Pro um, Mm. for that dollar amount because wildlife photography is expensive and just use your phone and learn how to use a camera, read about it and and everything else and then kind of bridge up because once you get into – when I say true wildlife photography, but like you're taking photos that you can make into prints and – it's fucking expensive. I mean, it's just expensive to get into at a high level. Um, that Olympus system, um, talk about that a little bit more. Which camera body are you using? And for someone, especially someone that doesn't want to pack the weight, um, and I'm probably twice your body weight, right? Like I can handle a little more weight packing it in, but fuck shit. I mean, it's an extra 40 pounds of shit when I go in. Um, you know, when you talk about if I bring in the, the big tripod, if I'm, I am bring in my gimbal head and everything else, like that system that you have is probably what, probably 50% less weight than what I have. I haven't done the math, but dollar wise, which camera body are you using? Which some of the lenses, things like that. And then, then price wise, they're about half the price of, of competitors. Totally. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's a great question. Um, I shoot with their newest professional body that they came out with uh, about a year ago it's the om one it's their high performance top of the line camera body and it now costs two thousand dollars which is like absolutely insane for such a good camera uh, it's got all the features that I'm obsessed with obviously it's lightweight portable durable as hell it's also um, it's got really good low light performance which I know is something that prevents a lot of people from being interested in Olympus or at least it used to in the past because the reason that Olympus is able to be so lightweight and portable and durable with their gear is a micro four-thirds camera. So by design, any lens you put on an Olympus body, the focal length will be doubled. So that's how my telephoto lens, the one that I carry with me everywhere I go in the field, by design, in terms of physical amount of glass and components of the lens, It is a 150 to 800 millimeter lens and so it weighs the same as a 150 to 800 millimeter lens should which or i'm I'm sorry i said that totally wrong a 150 to 400 millimeter lens by design it's a 150 to 400 millimeter lens in terms of components inside the body of the lens so that enables it to weigh as much as a 150 to 400 millimeter lens should which is about four pounds if that like three and a half four pounds so super light but that micro four thirds sensor in the camera body doubles that focal length. So my 150 to 400 millimeter lens has the same exact field of view as a 300 to 800 millimeter lens. That's where that 800 number came into my brain. And then it's also got this teleconverter built into the lens. So you just click the switch and it extends the reach to a 1000 millimeter reach, roughly. Um, and the aperture, by the way, for this is a 4.5. So that's like absolutely insane. A thousand millimeters. Uh, when, you, when you switch into 2,000 millimeters, your aperture becomes 5.6, which is still fantastic for that reach. And then to have a lens that's a 800 millimeter field of view equivalent with a 4.5 aperture and the lens weighs four pounds and only costs $8,000, like there is no similar option on the market to that. So that's my setup every time I go afield is an OM-1 paired with their 150 to 400 millimeter lens. Now, the tricky thing, though, for anyone who's listening and is thinking, wow, that sounds like a great setup. um, The tricky thing about that lens is it's in such high demand right now that it is literally impossible to get your hands on one immediately. Um, You're going to be waiting four to eight months, if not longer than that, for the lens, because it's just uh, nothing like this has ever been made before. It has blown people's minds. It's super, super duper backordered. So. The uh, OM System Olympus offers another telephoto lens. It's a prime lens. It's a 300 millimeter F4. So again, by design, physically in your hand, it's built like any other 300 millimeter. So it's small enough that you can put it in the hoodie of your, or in the pocket of your hoodie. But the field of view is a 600 millimeter F4. So that's that's a fantastic lens. That's the direct competitor to the 600 millimeter F4 lenses that Canon and Nikon make for um, probably about, let's see, what that lens is right now. It's gotten marked down considerably since the white lens, the big uh, zoom lens came out. Yeah. So that lens costs about $2,000 now. Um, So for the camera body at $2,000, the 300 millimeter F4 lens at $2,000, you're out of pocket four grand, which is, I don't know, like a third of an R5 and a 400 F4 made by Canon
0: less than that let's see so 11 That at math fifth no you're yeah you're at. Uh, you're thousand. so yeah um yeah uh less than a third um you know give or take uh and you know when when <clears throat> when i try um when people get really and i'm a gear junkie right people get really wrapped up around i mean don't get me wrong like when a new camera comes out from whoever i'm looking at it um yeah. Generally, the camera at even some of the lower, when I say lower, if you look at like a Canon R6 compared to like what you're shooting, they're both about, you know, they're about the same price, like an R6 too. Um, That camera is far better than um, you you are ever going to be for, for quite some time. And people get kind of wrapped up on the gear side of things. and learning photography and composing a shot and things like that are far more important in a lot of ways than your initial purchase that I've found. Meaning like I'll have people dump a lot of money uh, that would be confused about what you and I are talking about right now and dump a lot of money into photography. You can learn that before you get a camera. So like when we're talking about the aperture, when we're throwing out like uh, I've got an F4 or a two eight four hundred. You know, there's all of that is very, I mean, there's a, I mean, I, whatever, I can't let Peter McKinnon or Frono's photos or Chelsea and Nike Tony, I, there's a ton of different photography pages out there on mm-hmm. YouTube. You can learn, um, before you even get the camera, cause the one thing you don't want to do is buy all this and find out you don't like it. You have to have a, a passion for it. I think that when I say passion, meaning you obviously have a passion for bears, outdoor photography, doesn't mean you couldn't shoot a wedding or whatever. Some people like product shots or indoor shots, like they shoot, you know, wine and, you know, um, you, they do a lot of more indoor photography, whatever. Um, if you're into that and you, you know, you're wanting to dive in, the next thing is kind of like Brooke would talked about, um, how much you can physically carry, how much you can handle. Um, if you're right. into outdoor photography, if I, if I, and you know, like I have a 28 to 70, which is a freaking chode of a lens. I don't know what that thing weighs two and a half pounds. Um, it's an F2. Uh, if I take that and a 400 miller 28 eight and my doubler and, uh, my R3, I'm probably pushing 20 pounds with that system right there. Uh, maybe 22 pounds before I have a tripod or anything else. Your system is probably what of the equivalent is probably four and a half to five pounds is that
1: yeah. I'd say, I think five and a half is exactly what it weighs in
0: at. Yeah. So those are all different things to think about. Why, can you go into a little bit more depth um, of the, when you talk about a crop sensor, a micro four thirds compared to a full frame sensor where people are going to be lacking um, or what they're losing from a crop sensor or, or, or micro four thirds compared to a full frame.
1: Totally. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, so the smaller sensor um, obviously translates to less megapixels. So, Sony cameras right now are like the kings of megapixels. Um, forgive me, by the way, if when I'm talking about this, I accidentally say megapixels at some point. I, I always do that.
0: I, I say mega, but, uh, donkey, mega donkeys all the time. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm the only one who can't say megapixels. Um, Sony has, like, I don't know, I think they have cameras that have 28 megapixels and maybe even more than that by now. That was like two years ago. Um, Olympus, I actually don't know off the top of my head how many megapixels the OM-1 has. It's, it's tw- significantly less.
0: 20 is uh, what it is. I'm looking at Okay, it up now. that
1: makes sense. Like 20.4, I think, something yeah. like that. So, yeah, smaller amount of megapixels. One of the concerns for that becomes printing really large format. Uh, that's what people often ask me about. I know a lot of folks, especially in the wildlife photography world who primarily make their income doing gallery work, um, which means they need to be able to print really high quality photos at a very, very large format and have the images look absolutely flawless at whatever size they decide to print. So, people definitely get very concerned as to what the largest print size is that you can successfully produce without the megapixels diminishing from that print quality. Uh, To be honest with you, I I am a gallery represented photographer, that's one of the income streams that I have. I print large format photos all the time and I haven't yet figured out what the limit is for megapixels. So from a print standpoint, it could be a concern, like if you're planning on printing photos to be used as bus wraps or billboards or something like that, maybe think a little bit. Um, Another concern with megapixels and especially with wildlife photography is oftentimes your subject is a bajillion miles away. And obviously having more megapixels means you can crop to a much smaller portion of the frame and still retain a level of sharpness and detail. So if you're planning on being a wildlife photographer, it's going to be really distant from your subjects and you're going to be a heavy cropper. Maybe think twice about having less megapixels like the Olympus system offers. Um, Personally, I also don't ever have that problem. Maybe I'm getting too close to animals, but I don't if an animal is so distant that I need to crop to ridiculous levels, it's not a usable photo in my book anyway.
0: One one thing I would add to that with technology in Lightroom, there's an enhanced version where it will um, double up uh, your, yeah. it'll make it. And then there's also other apps that are really amazing that when you crop, it will actually fix a lot of the issues that you're, talking about from my experience so far. So some of the stuff that I used to worry about and you're talking about has kinda, cause my R3 is only 24. It's not that, I mean, 24 is still solid, but it's not 45 like my R5. Technology is a motherfucker, right? I mean, technology is fixing some of these problems. So it's not the end of the world. I just have never had, I hear people bitch about that, but I'm like, I just i don't i haven't struggled with that I you know i say i just walk a little bit closer you don't always have that you know of, of luxury but man how many people are blowing up a billboard that's like you know truly it's like driving a semi truck through the drive through like most people are using exactly. the shit for social media and magazines and even a 24 by 30 or a 24 by 36 print 10 to 12 uh in, anyway i'll let you take it over from here it's not that big of a deal i guess is what i'm getting at but go ahead
1: Totally. You absolutely nailed it. Um, There are so many post-production tricks and tips to retain what you lose um, from megapixels if it ever even gets to the point where that's an issue. And like I said, it's never once been an issue for me. And also, it's really funny that I use, I do this all the time. I use the example of a bus wrap as maybe the prohibitive size for the Olympus camera system, but I actually have had one of my photos wrap a bus before and it was fine. So I don't even know why I use that example um, because a bus isn't even the limit. It has to be like even bigger than your average school bus. Um, One of the other concerns too that people talk about quite a bit with this system is historically micro four-thirds sensors have struggled considerably at low light compared to other cameras. I know that for a long time, Olympus and other micro four-thirds camera systems weren't really the first look uh, or the first choice of photographers that focus on astrophotography or any sort of low light genre. So people who are shooting indoors, people who are doing light painting, things like that. Um, I don't, I'm I'm not a very technical individual. Uh, so I don't understand how <laughs> my new Olympus OM-1 works. All I know is that, yes, there used to be a time when, you know, the hour after the sun went down, I would kind of stop shooting because I found that if I was pushing my ISO above 10,000, my photos weren't all that usable, even if I did run them through some sort of denoise software. With the new OM-1, the low light capability of my Olympus system is on par with any of my friend's competitor brands. I can shoot straight until the light is lost and not find that I'm struggling to push my ISO um, I can photograph the Milky Way along with the best of them, and I have the luxury of being able to do it handheld because Olympus has by far the best image stabilization in the world. You don't need a tripod even for a 30 second Milky Way exposure. So I think that by some black magic, this new camera body, the OM1, has really improved the low light capability. I do still think that somebody who's shooting a lot in low light might pick up one of the older models, like the. the predecessor to the OM-1 is the Olympus EM-1 Mark III. And there's a noticeable difference between the low-light capabilities between those two cameras. So that's something to be mindful of. Um, It's definitely improved in the latest model. But yeah, if if you're going for an Olympus camera that isn't the OM-1, you you might find low-light to be a little bit trickier if you're switching from a a camera like an R5 or something like that.
0: Well, and with what, um, obviously for anybody listening in, again, you really need it's like anything that you are getting into. You need to Take a a big like if you're about to make a big monetary commitment, look at what you're going to be focusing on before you make that purchase, and and then make that purchase in in accordance with what you're wanting to do. Most, I, I mean, I I shoot all kinds of shit. From you know, I go downtown and take cityscapes, and I do a lot of night photography, astrophotography, um, wildlife photography. I love landscapes, and so. I have all kinds of stuff at my house. Most people that I have found, most photographers are kind of, they have their, like their, their, their money stuff. Like they're what they really like to focus on and weight is a big issue. Um, you generally with a tripod, um, can, like you were talking about you, you, you know, the, uh, image stabilization with, with your system, you know, can fix a lot of issues. Like I try not to ever bump up, um, my ISO very high. I'm one of those guys. I mean, I'm running at minimum all the time to my own demise, right? Like I am overly anal about that and I shouldn't because of technology packing around a tripod really will fix most issues, right? When you talk about low light. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's a moving object, obviously a different story, but um, even putting it on my boot or whatever, right? As long as it's not moving, but people will really dive into some of these things as they're in hindrance and they they're picking fly shit out of chili, I guess is what I'm getting at or however (laughs) you want to look at it. It is not an an issue unless um, it is, it is truly like you talked about. There's not going to be, if you're using a 600 millimeter F4, no, not very many lenses are going to compete with that specific lens for what it does. It's also the size of a fucking child, right? So, (laughs) you know, again, so if you're not ever going to pack it around, what really good is it to have a 600 millimeter F4? Cause it, it'll take up a 2000 cubic inch backpack. It's big. Um, right. so with what like you're doing, you, your camera and your outdoor lens is you said about four pounds and some of the other lenses. So let's say you've got your outdoor lens and then your walk around lens like a 50 or a 45 or a 35. What's the size? Do you have one of those for, I already know this, but for people listening in, what's what's the size of that lens for like a walk around lens if you're just photographing other photographers, campsites, things like that?
1: Totally, yeah. So I, I primarily use for that kind of stuff. I call it my lifestyle lens is my 25 millimeter 2.8, eight. Um, and it is the size of, gosh, what's a good re- reference?
0: It looks like, like about the size of a baseball.
1: Yeah, yeah. Even smaller, like the diameter of a baseball, maybe even smaller than that. I mean, I put it in my pocket. And to any women listening, you know how small pockets are on women's pants. So it's that small that it can fit in the front pocket of any pair of jeans that I own. It's it's nothing. I I don't even think twice about whether I should bring it or not because it's smaller than my cell phone when you think of how much, you know, cubic inches it takes up within my pocket.
0: And in, in my, um, I have like, we'll say the, what do I have a, f- uh, 15 to 35, um, is one of my lenses. And, and that is the size of a softball and it's not going in a front pocket of any pant, uh, maybe a cargo <laughs> pocket. And I am not bashing, uh, Canon or le- this is just reality. This is, is, is what it is. Now my 50 millimeter one, two is one of the greatest lenses ever made. Uh, in my opinion, that thing is amazing. It is fucking heavy. Uh, it is big, right? I mean, it literally is a giant lens. Again, if you aren't physically able to carry it, you really should not look at that system because I'm telling you, if you're doing backpack photography, whether it's wildlife, landscape, whatever, when you're loading up those lenses in your pack, you may load them up for your first trip. And then your second trip, when you realize how much you sucked ass getting in, your next trip in, you're going to be starting to not take as much lenses as you might normally take because of the weight. That's just the nature of the beast. And that was one thing that with Olympus always was intriguing is it's just a lighter system. So with with talking about that like you're 25 and you're 2.8. 2.8 two is a fairly, relatively fast lens. Before we confuse people anymore, talk about that a little bit. I know you said you're not a tech person, but with the 2.8, that's a little bit more light in. What are you using that for? You call that a lifestyle lens, but how much is that on your camera? Um, And and what are you getting out of those shots? Are you doing that for some nightscapes as well? Um, You know, where's that come into play for you on your day-to-day?
1: Yeah, great question. So, um, you know the phrase some people are a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Um, I am a master of one thing, like one thing only, and it's the only thing I do. So I am 999999999 percent using my camera for wildlife photography, and that's it. But because that little lens is so small and portable, I do keep it with me whenever I go out on adventures. I call it my lifestyle lens because if I'm doing something really cool and the thought pops into my head, like, whoa, I live a sweet lifestyle. I want to capture this to remember it for when I'm 104 and not as mobile or adventurous as I am now at 30. Um, so I, I take photos of my friends, lifestyle pictures of if I'm out snowboarding with my buddies and they're throwing cool tricks in the air, um, I'll snap some photos of them doing that. And I do love to use it for Milky Way. Over the last few years, I've fallen out of practice with astrophotography, but I do absolutely adore it. I think it's such a fun, creative expression. Somehow it satisfies the same part of my brain that's obsessed with animals. I think there's something you know, magical about seeing the cosmos in a way that you can't with your naked eye is quite similar to seeing an animal's the detail of a bear's eyelashes which is a feature you can't make out with your naked eye you need to have this this gear to help enhance your your view of these things so it's a fantastic little milky way lens obviously you know like i said since it's an olympus lens you double the focal length so it's a 25 millimeter by design but in field of view it's a 50 mil which is pretty close um, pretty zoomed in for a Milky Way photo, but I really only care about the very core of the Milky Way, so it matches what my preference is perfectly. Um, and it's a really affordable little lens, too. So it's one of those things where I just feel like if you're, even if you're a totally invested in wildlife photography or one specific photography genre, it is still really nice to have something that's affordable, portable, that you can carry with you for those other moments that you might want to capture. Cool sunset your friend doing something silly, um, a cute moment between, you know, yourself and your partner, something adorable, your dog's doing on the side of the trail, things like that.
0: Gotcha. So you, you talked about the Jack of all t- trades thing. Um, that's another thing that, um, <clears throat> how would I put this, uh, keeping price in mind. <laughs> um, when you are a master of all things photography, you are also going to be poor, potentially divorced mm-hmm. or drive a Pinto. Um, be, bec- because one lens does not do all. And in one camera body is going to get you close. Um, but you know, having a backup camera body is handy. So let's say Brooke calls says, Hey Aaron, let's go meet me in Jackson. We're going to go photograph Buffalo. All right? Great. I am going to grab my 400 to eight or my 600 and, uh, maybe my doubler, And probably going to grab my R3 because it's like 45 frames a second. And uh, just a monster when it comes to, you know, catching snot dripping out of buffalo's nose or a bison's nose. (laughs) And then I call Brooke and I say, hey, um, come down. We're going to go, uh, you know, the stars are supposed to be crazy tonight. Uh, I'm going to actually drive my truck down the highway. I want you to take some shots with my truck coming and get the stars in the background in a mountain range. That 400 millimeter is pretty much fucking worthless at that point, right? You, there's gotta be another lens. You can do a 70 to 200 might get you there. There's multiple other lenses that are options, but you're going to end up having to have three lenses potentially to be somewhat of a master of everything. And, And, and that's, again, my opinion, what I have found, um, that's a costly way to be. Is I guess what I'm getting at. And totally especially if you own a fucking Nikon or a Canon Canon. And when I say that, you can buy F4s or a little bit cheaper lenses, you can buy used lenses, but again, it's going to be expensive. So right now with your system and three lenses, do you do you just use two primary or do you have three or four? Like I know you're like what your wildlife lens is, what are you said the 25? Is there any other lenses you use?
1: Yeah, I got um I got two other Small lenses, ones an eight to twenty-five millimeter. I think it's a one-four, and then I've got a seven to fourteen millimeter lens. I use both of those lenses for my camera trapping, um, for my remote remote camera work that I'm I haven't really posted at all on social media because I'm a perfectionist and I won't share my work until I feel like it's of a certain quality. And as of right now, my camera trap photos all suck, um, <laughs> but. I use those lenses for that because of the fact that these animals, you know, I'm photographing them remotely using a motion sensor. I can have the camera right on top of where the animal's going to pass by, and then I've got um, oh, another telephoto lens that I do love for wildlife as well. It's the 40 to 150 2.8. So that's focal a, length equivalent of
0: that's a kick-ass film lens too. By the way, that is a cr- that crushes it in on the film side.
1: Yeah, I didn't know much of anything really about video. I'm starting to dip my toes into that realm a little bit more this winter with some projects that I've been working on. And it's amazing for that. And it's also uh, my instinct with wildlife photography is often to crop really close. I want to like see the animal's eyes and his eyelashes. But oftentimes people want to see an animal interacting with its habitat more. And the 40 to 150 enables me to capture like an elk with a giant mountain peak behind it or a a bear with a snowy forest behind him rather than just the elk's face or just the bear's face. So I've had that lens in my camera bag since 2019. This is the first year where I've been using it frequently because I think it's just really switched up my, my photographic style. But yeah, so I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight lenses for my Olympus system, which for any other system, um, I I can assure you I cannot afford eight lenses from Canon or Nikon.
0: Well, and I guess looking at that, and that's why I bring it up. And and again, I'm not saying don't buy Canon, and I'm not saying do buy, do buy, do purchase, whatever. Um, Olympus, but it is a very appealing system for the size and the price um, for most people. And when I say beginners, what you're going to spend for a beginner Canon system is an advanced system with the OM system to a, to a certain degree, because like a, yeah. I don't know all the prices or whatever, but a 51, two is probably 20. Fuck. I can look it up. 25, 2,800 bucks for one lens for the Canon, for the RF. Um, right. So, and again, like we talked, we didn't get into, I'm not much of a video guy and you're not much of a video gal. It sounds like I'm kind of doing the same thing, getting into it. Um, But there's specific lenses that are a little bit better for video compared to others. Um, I don't know that you're ever going to beat a Canon uh, for overall color and certain performance uh, when weight is not an option. And of course, that's personal opinion. But you're you're you're. And I'm stressing this: you are you are paying the Tolman. When I go in, I'm not shitting you. Brooke could probably get my fucking backpack for the amount of shit I have in camera gear and take up the same amount of space. It is it is heavy, um, so just something to look at. What are some of the other highlights on the Olympus, you know, system? Because I constantly am talking about Canon. Obviously, you covered their waterproof. Um, one of the other things, and this is the older version, they had a pretty badass, um, I guess you could say, uh, histogram setting, or they they could do crazy time lapses um, from mm-hmm. the older system. Do they? St- and I don't know if you fuck with that at all, but do that, are they still pretty cool on the tech with that?
1: yes they absolutely are i don't know a ton about it i do know that that's one of the like i sometimes joke that um olympus cameras are over engineered because they have so many like crazy in-camera features and things that you can that i like didn't even know i ever needed or wanted um that's definitely still a thing and then of course from the wildlife specific feature that i'm obsessed with this is actually like it's, it's really great it's an amazing feature and it's enabled me to get some insane photos really easily but it's also like totally spoiled me i recently went out and shot some photos um on a old nikon dslr that did not have this feature and I, it was like the hardest day of shooting in my life but there's a setting in uh, the olympus pro model cameras so the om1 the em1 mark 3 called pro capture and it's like for anyone who's listening who's familiar with videography it's like pre-roll but for still photos so what that means is when i have my camera pointed at a subject. I'm going to use the example of an eagle. And I know that the eagle is about to take flight. And the eagle is overlooking a salmon stream. And that salmon stream is between me and the eagle. So I know when he takes flight, he's going to fly, swoop towards the salmon and fly right at me. And I want a photo of the exact moment that he lifts his wings and pushes off from that branch where his talons are out and it just is going to look really charismatic. Um, You can sit there and Watch the eagle's body language and hope and pray that you're reading him right so that you don't miss the shot of that second he releases the branch and pushes up with his wings. Or if we shoot Olympus, you can turn on pro capture mode where all you have to do is you have you have down on your shutter and your camera is actually taking photos um, at a really high frame rate. I believe it's around 120 frames per more than that. But it's not saving those photos to your memory card. It's just taking them, taking them, taking them, deleting them, deleting them, deleting them, until you push the shutter button all the way down. Then all of those frames from the three seconds before you hit your shutter button, and all of the frames from however many seconds afterwards while you're holding down your shutter button are now getting written to your memory card. So if you're watching the eagle, watching him, you're holding down halfway, oh, he takes flight, you hit your shutter down after you have that thought, oh, he's flying away, you still get that photo of that exact moment. Uh, I have a lot of photos in my portfolio of bears catching fish while the fish are jumping through the air. I took all of those using Pro Capture mode. Whereas my friends that were standing side by side with me that were shooting Sony, were just kind of like literally shooting fish in a barrel, just hoping they're hitting their shutter at the right <clears and> the <throat> fish jump. <clears throat> I have the luxury of always going to get that shot because of that Pro Capture feature. It's a dream for wildlife and sports.
0: I, I'm I was not aware of that feature, but I will tell you from a perspective of eating up. Um, your time and or memory um if you're for post-processing and everything else so with the r3 it fires at 45 frames a second and i have not had a camera that does that so i just went out to try out my new lens um and at 45 frames a second trying to catch i was just ducks were flying around it was cold as shit right uh, in a very short period of time, I had 5,700 photos, uh, at 45 frames a second. is the things it's a Gatling gun, right? So then Eagles, right? There's a ton of Eagles between me and Dubois that, uh, will catch right on that river, whether they're eating gophers and shit or whatever. Um, it's a, it's a mega donkey eater. I mean, it's just crushing memory because, whether it's your time, when I say time, if you're like, oh, I don't want to put them on, you know, with a catalog. I don't want to go through and pick through them. I'm just going to dump them all and start looking. F- with a 45 frame per second camera and an hour shooting birds in general or, or raptors, you could potentially have 10,000 photos in an hour relatively quickly if you're just watching them fly around trying to catch specific shots. It sounds like that cures some of those problems. Uh, and I'm, I was not familiar with that um, with, with the, the OM system. That sounds cool.
1: It's so cool. And you just never miss a moment. Cause I mean, you miss the moment, but your camera doesn't, it's, it's so rad. It's definitely one of those features though, where, um, I think in the long run I have become completely dependent on it. So it definitely shoots me in the foot when I have to shoot anything, wildlife action with a different camera. But when I've got my Olympus system, I'm good to go. I won't miss a moment. I won't fill a memory card. I'll get the action shot, whatever behavior I was waiting for. I can nail it every time.
0: No, that's cool. That's awesome. Um, Well, we've been on like an hour and 25 minutes. I don't want to take up your entire morning. Um, Is there anything else you want to cover? Any advice for like beginner photographers, Thing that, you know, wildlife photographers, your story is pretty amazing as far as traveling kind of state to state till you found your home, anything, any advice you want to give?
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I always like to iterate when there are people that I know who are listening, who are either, beginner photographers or don't even own a camera yet, but are aspiring to live a life or or have something in their life that's similar to what I do. Um, First and foremost, since we've talked so much about gear and and what to get, never forget the best camera is the camera you have on you. That's why I love the advice you gave to people who, uh, you know, just get an iPhone and use that. Um, Whatever you have that takes pictures, bring it with you make decisions about what kind of cameras will be the easiest for you to bring with you for what you're shooting, but just make sure you have it on you. The more you take photos, the more you do the thing, the better you're going to get at it. And then the other bit of advice is just like, you know, my path has been a crazy one. Um, I don't think it's necessarily recreatable just because so much of what I do has been like luck and coincidence conspiring in the proper chain of events to get me where I'm at. But all you have to do to get where you want to be is, is just do it. Um, I know that's like a trademark saying from Nike and that's really corny, but in photography, especially, or really, I'm going to speak for any outdoor industry as a whole. If you have the passion and the drive and you continuously keep on doing the thing, whatever it may be, and sharing your passion and drive for doing the thing, it's going to start to work out for you. You have to be patient you're going to take two steps forward and one step back, but a career as a professional wilderness guide or a professional photographer, or even if that just becomes like a side hobby that you monetize a little bit, or even if you don't want to monetize it, you just want to get really good at it. You can absolutely do it. If you just keep on doing it.
0: I would agree with that 100% because my dumbass barely graduated high school and I got to where I am by just doing it. And I think that, um, get your ass out there and just do epic shit and don't let anything get in the way. And you've proven that. And it's, your story's amazing. Your photography's amazing. So it's cool to see someone And the fact, like, you know, obviously I have a daughter, um, you, you know, it's, it's generally the way most people look at it. You, you're a bear guide and you're not some big goofy looking fucker with a beard that might, people might, have the perception that would be a bear guide. You look like you're about 120 pounds soaking wet. So, and you're crushing it. So that's amazing.
1: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter like what the walk of life is that you're trying to get into any reason that you can think of to not do a thing is really just kind of an excuse that's coming from your own brain. Um, You can always figure it out and get through it and make shit happen.
0: For sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much for, for getting on the podcast. I'm sure at some point uh, we'll probably bump into each other, especially now that the weather isn't as bad just cause um, you're kind of in a honey hole of photography. So if you uh, see the giant white uh, truck throw a snowball at her or something say hello, um, just cause you're in, you're in a good spot for photography right now. So.
1: Hell yeah. Yeah. We've got to link up and shoot. Um, we, we live too close and have too much cool shit in between the two of us to not make that happen
0: (laughs) no for sure definitely um well thank you again and tell everybody where your your social media page where they can go follow along
1: yeah so check me out on instagram it's brooke little bear super easy to remember because i'm brooke i'm little and i love bears and it's brooke with an e (laughs)
0: all right well thank you again for hopping on and thanks everybody for tuning in